Thank you, Larry. If you're a first-time visitor, we uh, want you to know that our worship center doesn't always look like this. Uh, several times a year, we get very creative in here, don't we? And uh, this is uh, exciting to me, and I thank you for putting up with a little bit of inconvenience. But it's so exciting to be remembered that the Easter ministry is not the ministry of the choir or the orchestra. It's all the church's ministry. Some of you are going to take care of children. Others of you are going to usher. Some of you are going to lift an offering. Some of you are going to pray. Some of you are going to help with costumes. And uh, we're all going to, to pray and invite folks to the Easter pageant ministry. For the last several weeks, we've been moving with Jesus toward the cross. And as we move with Jesus to the cross, we understand some of the things that he experienced and can learn how we can experience them. We've talked about disappointment. We've talked about rejection. We've talked about all the things that from a human perspective, Jesus must have faced. Today, we want to deal with, uh, see how Jesus dealt with frustration. We're talking about dealing with frustration. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22, and we'll take Luke's account. Because Luke was a physician, he called Jesus the Son of Man more often than the Son of God. He saw things from a physical perspective, and indeed a human perspective, that Mark and Matthew, probably even John, who wrote of Jesus as the Son of God, did not see. And so in Luke chapter 22, we pick up the story beginning with verse 65. The men who had held Jesus there at Caiaphas' house had uh, mocked him and beat him. They blindfolded him in verse 64. They struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? From verse 62 to verse 63, the focus turns from Peter to Jesus. And then note verse 65, many other things they insultingly spoke against him. I wonder what those things might have been. And then suddenly at verse 66, the night is over and at day legally, the Sanhedrin, which is the council of Israel, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin could now legally meet. And so the elders of the people, chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council. And now you begin to see the final stage of Jesus' trial leading him to the cross. From the standpoint of his human nature, Jesus came to the cross in total frustration. The psalmist calls it wit's end corner. We say, I've come to the end of my rope. We say, I feel boxed in. That is where Jesus was during the trial, starting at Caiaphas' house, moving to the praetorium where Pilate questioned him, moving over to the Hasmonean palace where Herod Antipas questioned him, moving back to the praetorium 
and then on to the cross and death. A number of years ago, I was preaching a citywide crusade in the northern Philippines. And one day they asked if I would go out to a village and conduct a street meeting. And the only way to get there, other than a 12-day hike, was by a missionary plane. And I said, well, I think I'd like to go. I'm going. And so we got together, strapped ourselves. Actually, we strapped this little box-nosed plane around us. And we took off into the high mountains of, the northern, of northern Luzon. And I'll never forget, we came in crossways across this little airstrip. And uh, we didn't land. And I said to the pilot, did you miss it? You're not going the right direction to settle down here. And he said, oh, no. He said, I'm flying across this to chase all the pigs off the field before we land. He said, you don't want to land and hit one of these 200-pound wild hogs. He said, I can tell you that. So we circled around and came back in. And this time, we were headed straight towards a box canyon. Do you know what a box canyon is? It's a canyon that ends like a box, the corner of a box, and there's no way out. High mountains. He said, we have to do this because there's no second chance landing on this strip. And so we came in, headed straight into the corner. After we chased the pigs off, we came in facing straight into that corner, stopped just before we got to the corners of the Box Canyon, and I breathed a great sigh of relief. It was a time to learn how to pray, uh, it, I can tell you. Flying in a rainstorm with Rick Reed or Grant Jeffries or Wayne Hurst or Chuck Campbell is nothing compared to the Philippines. But as we landed towards that Box Canyon, I thought to myself, there is no place to go. There is no second chance. There is no place but right in the corner. We've got one shot at it. And it hit me, that is what it means when you come to wit's end corner. Well, that's where Jesus was. Frustration. To be frustrated is to be opposed. It is to be thwarted. It is to face a circumstance with no alternatives. Fr to frustrate implies making a person's efforts and plans seem useless. To thwart implies blocking all efforts. And to baffle implies puzzling or confusing someone so that they can proceed no farther. Actually, You've heard me say, one of the signs of maturity is the ability to live with seeming ambiguities. Let me press that one step further. You can tell a child has grown up when they learn how to take frustration. How do I deal with a frustrating circumstance in which I have no other choice but to take what is mine? To tolerate disappointment and to draw from that frustration, that frustrating experience, some positive result. Now remember, Jesus as a boy increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And now he's ready to die.
He is at the end. To whatever degree, as a human being, he was going to develop and mature. He is the quintessence of what it mean, means of being a human. He is at the absolute level of maturity. That's why he is a proper model for us to study. Christ not only went to the cross as our substitute for sin, but as our model for living. And how he faced frustration is a lesson for us. Frustrated? Oh, yes. Have you ever been there? Let me share with you the four things that I glean from Jesus' experience that describe my own frustration when I'm in that kind of a circumstance. I'm at my wit's end corner when I'm facing a circumstance and there is absolutely no one who can help me in any way. Have you been there? Have you been that, to that spot on the road where no one can help you? Or let me give you a second one. You are at that spot in life over which you have absolutely no control. You're facing something and there is, you have no influence on the outcome whatsoever. It is totally out of your hands. I have often thought that must be the way somebody would feel when they're on trial. And the testimony is done. And the case has gone to the jury. So first is the issue of help. Second is the issue of control. And for some of us control freaks, frustration can drive us absolutely crazy. Third, it's a matter of truth. You're frustrated when truth doesn't seem to matter, when it makes no difference, and the truth does not change the outcome of the situation. That's frustration. Have you ever been there in a job? The boss asks you, why did this happen? You tell the truth, and the more you tell the truth, the worse it makes the circumstance. But there's a fourth way you can see, and this is all Jesus faced all of these. It is a matter of blame. Circumstances are, are happening even though I did nothing to deserve them. It's a matter of, I'm facing something that I did nothing to deserve, but the circumstance is here, and I am frustrated. Jesus had come humanly to the end of the way. He was deserted. There was no one to help. He had already done all he could. Without exerting his divinity, Jesus had no more control and no influence on the outcome of the events. He had told the truth, but the truth didn't seem to matter. And he was facing circumstances he didn't even deserve. <laughs> now think about that in your own life. How many of you can think of a situation, a frustration like that, that you faced sometime? Have you ever been there? Come on, really honestly, raise your hand. I want to see. How many of you have felt keenly a situation like that, a circumstance like that? Now, look at our text and watch how Jesus faced his frustration. So the story turns to Jesus in verse 63, and the men mocked him and beat him. And, uh, and then they're going to take him to the chief priests and scribes in verse 66, a formal meeting. And then 
verse 1 of chapter 23, they lead him to Pilate. Verse 6, when Pilate hears that he's a Galilean, he sends him over to Herod. Verse 8, Herod sees Jesus. They treat him with contempt in verse 11 and mock him. And they make fun of him and send him back to Pilate in verse 12. And Pilate calls together the chief priests, the rulers, and tries to oversee a trial. But there's no changing their mind. And so the trial is over in verse 25. And he releases Barabbas instead of Jesus. I think we need to remember this as we walk down through this story. Pilate hated Jesus. I think his attempts to try to exonerate Jesus were not so much a righteous recognition of who Jesus was as the fact that he hated the Jews and Pilate hated to do anything to please them. I believe that's, that's one thing we must remember. He was not anxious to please them and he only acceded to the condemnation of Jesus when his position was threatened and they finally said he is going to subvert the people against Rome, which was, of course, a lie. Now, Pilate, during the times, the two times he saw Jesus, he tried to do five things. Same thing we try to do. We're trying to make a decision about Jesus. I've watched lost people do every one of these things. First, they try to shake it off. <laughs> and they try to get rid of it somehow. Let's just put it off. Secondly, they try to Pilate tried to return Jesus to the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council. And that didn't work. Then he sent him to Herod. Let Herod make the decision. And that didn't work. Herod sent him back. Then he tried to compromise the issue. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. In verse 15 of chapter 23, Neither did Herod find any fault in him. I sent him back to you. Indeed, nothing worthy of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will beat him, I will chastise him, and then I will release him. I will compromise the issue. I'll try to make you happy by beating him, and then I'll turn Jesus loose. But that wouldn't work either. And suddenly he said, I'll release him at the feast. They all cried, oh no, verse 18. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. The crowd shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Now why had the crowd changed their mind? Well, for one thing, coming in the triumphal entry, they had all accorded him a claim as the Messiah. But Jesus wasn't the political Messiah that they wanted. He said, my, my kingship is not of this world. It's spiritual. So they rejected him. Having been disappointed by him, now the crowd had turned against him. Why did they choose Barabbas? I think secondly, the choice wasn't between Jesus and Barabbas. The choice was between Pilate and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin wanted him dead. Pilate wanted to spare him. They hated Pilate, so they voted for Barabbas against Pilate and for the Sanhedrin. Third reason, remember Pilate's wife called him back from the trial and said, have nothing to do with this innocent man? While Pilate was back consulting with his wife, I'll guarantee you the Sanhedrin were moving among the crowd 
trying to persuade them to call for Jesus. They had seized the political moment and had whipped up the crowd and said, let's make sure that this man, Jesus, is crucified. So they called for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Now let's let the text shout out loudly to us five things that speak of Jesus' attitude in the middle of frustration. They are the five good lessons for us when your daughter is strung out on drugs and she's running with the wrong crowd and you have no idea what else to do. The matter is out of your hands. There are five good lessons for us when you've been caught speeding, he's got you on the radar, you are guilty, you know you're guilty, and no excuse will get you loose. Amen? You ever been there? That's when I feel out of control. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. <laughs> I remember one year we were going on the cruise, and there was an 83-year-old man who had just gotten married again. And he'd been picked up for speeding 80 miles an hour on the Florida Turnpike going to the cruise. And he told me this, that the cruise was his honeymoon. And when the Florida State Patrolman pulled him over and said, where are you going in a hurry? He said, if you were 83 and just starting out on your honeymoon on a cruise, you'd be driving fast too. And the State Patrolman let him go. <laughs> said, God bless you. <laughs> The first thing to do with your frustration is never play into your enemy's hands. Never play into your enemy's hands. Now watch verse uh, 63 of chapter 22. The men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, blindfolded him, struck him on the face, and said to him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Come on, tell us. Let's see if you really are a prophet. Let's see if you really are divine. Let's see if you really are anything special. Now, wasn't there a temptation for Jesus to use his divine powers to say, okay, I'm going to really embarrass you guys. I'll show you off. Okay, it was Osalephus who just hit me in the nose. But you know what the Bible says? There's no answer. They simply spoke insulting things to him. But when you put all the accounts together, he never played into their hands. <sighs> Prophesy who struck you, sort of like the temptation of the devil at the first of Jesus' ministry. Come on, Jesus. Jump off this cliff. Doesn't the Bible say that he gave his angels charge over you and you won't be hurt? They put him to the test. But you know, when we're dealing with frustration, you're better off never to satisfy the enemy because the fact is, even if Jesus had prophesied, what would they have done? How would it have changed the outcome? How would it have affected their beating of him? If they had seen all the things they had already seen and had not believed, Jesus could have prophesied every person who hit him and it would have made no difference. It is exactly what, what, the, what Jesus told the rich man 
in hell. Send, oh, somebody back from the grave, and then my brothers will believe. And Jesus said, oh, no, oh, no. If they have already heard and they will not believe Moses, they won't believe the one come back from the dead. See, over and over and over again, Jesus refused to play into his enemies' hands and give them anything that could be used as, a, as an accusation against his voluntary going to the cross and his fulfilling the purposes of God. In the middle of the most frustrating period of your life when you have no one to help, you've lost control, truth doesn't seem to make any difference, and you're getting something you've done nothing to deserve, I'm going to suggest to you that you do not cast your hand, yourself into the hands of your detractors, but you put yourself into the hands of your God. And you wait on Him. You know, every time I read 1 Peter chapter 2, when Peter says that Jesus was reviled, but he didn't revile back, I go back and read this, think of this passage. I mean, how much of this did Peter know from a distance? He watched him over there all night at Caiaphas' house where he denied him. He knew he'd been beaten. The word had spread. Never play into your enemy's hands. Secondly, when you're in a frustrating situation, notice this. Do right. Do what is right. Always do what is right and do not cave in. Chapter 22, verse 67 the council said to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Messiah, say so. He said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. In every instance, Jesus' response to frustration was governed by the hardness of the hearts of those who were in the process of killing him. He never answered on the basis of his feeling alone. He never answered on the basis of what he wanted. He answered on the basis of how his, his, uh, uh, his detractors had already rejected truth. And he says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. No. They said, make a claim. Go ahead and tell us who you are. What makes this particularly reprehensible is that the high priest tries to force Jesus to testify against himself. That's the point. He tries to force him. He wants to convict him on the basis of Jesus' own testimony because Jesus knew they had sought to get testi uh, testimony against him and they couldn't find any. All they could find were liars. So if you can't find anybody to lie against Jesus with a decent story, let's try to, to, let's try to twist this man and make him testify against himself. Actually, the council was supposed to be a judge over Jesus. And the judge has now turned to the prosecuting attorney and to the accuser. That's what made the trial such a farce. First they made him testify. They tried to make him testify against himself. Now they want to, they want to be the accusers. These men are supposed to be the judges. They're supposed to be the, the ones who are overseeing the trial. And they've now become the accusers. And all pretense of any kind of a fair trial is now gone. And Jesus refuses to cave in and be tricked 
by what they wanted to do to him. If you're going to kill me, you're going to take responsibility for my death yourself. I will not relieve you of the complicity. One of the hardest things in all of the Christian life is for us to learn how to hold other people responsible in a relationship. But here's an example of what Jesus did. I will not relieve you of your responsibility for wanting to kill me out of envy. I will not be a party. I will not relieve you of your accountability. I will not do what you ask me to do. Jesus did what was right. In essence, he said to them in verse 68, if I tell you, you will by no means believe, which is a way of saying no matter what I say, it will not do you any good because you are prejudiced, verse 68. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. I can turn around. Let me do what you've done. You turn around. You became the accuser. Let me turn this around. Let me be the accuser. I could charge you. I could ask you. But it wouldn't make any difference either, Jesus said. See, what he's acknowledging is that when men's hearts are hard and full of envy and covetousness, they're going to do you in one way or another. But Jesus said, I will not be a party to relieving you of the responsibility. Teenagers, you learn this and learn this well. When people attack you, you're in a tough situation. You don't have any answer for it. You're better off just to do what is right and keep your mouth quiet. You're better off to put that, that matter in the hands of God because the more you say, you compound the matter and two wrongs don't make a right, amen? They're wrong and you're wrong doesn't make a right. You, you fall in with them, then you give them an excuse for doing you in. Jesus stood his ground. He did what was right and did not cave in in the frustration. That leads to the third thing we find in chapter 23 in verse 8. Jesus in a frustrating situation, acted consistent with his character. When you're frustrated, you're in a situation where there's no help, it's out of control, you've done nothing to deserve it, and truth doesn't matter. The best thing you can do is act consistent with your character. Your mother and father... Your parents cannot train you what to say in every situation. But I'll tell you what I can train my children to do. I can train my children to always act in a difficult situation consistent with who you are inside. Because that cannot be hidden. Character is not only what you are in the dark. Character is not only what you are when nobody is looking. Character is what you are when your behavior doesn't make any difference to the outcome of a situation. I'm going to do right, but then I'm going to act consistent with my character. There's no word at all. Now, I want you to see this. When Herod Antipas saw Jesus, by the way, Herod was no good friend of Pilate. Pilate was no good friend to Herod. They hated each other. They were always at odds with each other. But you see, when, when, when Pilate found out that Jesus was a Galilean, 
in verses 6 and 7. As soon as he knew that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he happened to think, oh yeah, Herod is in town. He's over the Hasmonean palace. I'll get rid of this guy. I'll send him over to Herod. Then I won't have to make a decision. And I won't be guilty of this man's blood, and I'll please the Jews. He sent him over to Herod, and Herod was exceedingly glad, verse 8. He had desired for a long time to see Jesus because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And he questioned him with many words. But notice what happened. Jesus did what? He answered him absolutely nothing. We read in the extra-canonical books, the apocryphal books, about Jesus when he was a child and he would take mud pies when the kids would make mud pies and turn them into birds and they would fly away and then he would call the birds back and he would turn them back into mud pies. Now what possible purpose a miracle like that have? Herod says, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Come on, give me some miracle. Give me a thrill. Give, just show me a miracle. Jesus never acted with his divine nature out of character. Jesus to this day never performs capricious miracles. He doesn't do what he does because he's at the end of your tether. He does what he does when he acts consistent with his character, his nature, and the purposes of Almighty God. And for Jesus to have become a song and dance show a dog and pony exhibition for the purpose of Herod would not have satisfied Herod nor led him to faith. Jesus had done all kinds of miracles in the Old Testament, but they hadn't done the Old Testament saints much good. I mean, after all, they get out into the desert. They said, we're, we're hungry. We wish we were back in Egypt. And he gives them manna. After a few days, they're tired of manna. They say, we want some meat. He gives them quail. He said, we're tired, of, we're tired of these quail. They were tired of everything. Jesus gives them water. They said, well, now we want this. There's no evidence in all of the Old Testament that Jesus' miraculous works or God's miraculous works in the Old Testament ever did anything to actually build more faith in the children of Israel. Why would Jesus act out of, out of character? Now, I want to say to you children and young people, when you're in a frustrating situation that is out of your control and you don't quite know what decision to make, you always listen to the Holy Spirit in your heart. You take the Word of God and the principles of the Bible and you take what your character has been trained to be and you act consistent with who you are inside. Never go against the voice of the Holy Spirit and never go against your conscience until you... Work your conscience through that. The Bible is very clear in Romans 14, 23 on that. Act consistent with your character. So there was no word at all to Herod. Why do you think he answered him nothing? I'm going to show you, in my judgment, he answered him nothing because Herod had already had his chance. Hey, now this is a guy who had gone to visit his brother. And while he was on a home visit with his brother Philip, he kind of took a liking to Philip's wife. So he had an affair with her. And then he, he wanted to take her as his wife and did. And John the Baptist came right to him and said, shame on you. 
Shame on you, Herod. And you know what he did for that? He made a promise to his new girlfriend's uh, daughter, and he had to take Herod, I mean, Herod had to take John the Baptist's head off. You know why Jesus answered him nothing? Because he'd already had sufficient opportunity to believe, and he had refused. All through this trial, it seems to me, it, it, it's true uh, of, the, of the Sanhedrin. It's true of Pilate. It's true of Herod. Jesus said, there comes a time when you've turned me down so many times, no matter what I would do, you would not believe. And in each case, his dealing with the frustration is based upon the light they had already received, the opportunities to repent, the opportunities to believe, and they had refused them. And Jesus said, enough is enough. The fourth thing I learned from reading this carefully is that in this frustrating situation, Jesus fulfilled the will of God. Look at chapter 23, beginning, oh, let's say, verse, um, well, look at verse 35. The people stood looking on at the cross. And the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldier said the same thing, verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The criminal said the same thing, verse 39. If you are the Christ, save yourself. Only this time they added, and us. And back over here, you, you will see that this is the temptation all through this, the story of the cross. The temptation is to call down 12 legion of angels and to save himself. But if Jesus had spared himself, what would have happened to us? What would have happened to the prophecy of Isaiah 53? What would have happened to the prophecy of the cross? What would have happened to the prophecy of, of uh, Psalms 22? No, Jesus refused the temptation to save himself because he had a greater love to save the whole world. I think it's probably the most awesome example right here at this point of self-denying love in all the human drama. And it all focuses on the cross. He could have saved himself in fact, that's the way the criminals thought. In fact, that's the way the soldiers thought. In fact, that's the way the people thought. <laughs> Why wouldn't you save yourself? Why wouldn't you save yourself? It's sort of like Josh McDowell's survey, you know, recently of, of high school kids in churches, 152 uh, of them. And 149 said, yeah, I'd lie to save myself. These are Christians raised in Bible preaching churches. One said, I'm not sure. One said, I'd pray about it. And one, say, one said, well, I would not do it under any circumstances. But 149 out of 152 said, I would lie to save myself, to save my own skin. Wow. What are we teaching our young people? But here is Jesus three times. Save yourself if you're God. Save yourself if you're God. Save yourself if you're God. No, the answer is. His 
point was he had come to do the will of God. And in every circumstance of frustration, what must guide me through this frustrating time is, I keep asking myself, oh God, what is your will in this? What is your will? And even if I don't know your will, then I'm going to do what I think is your will, and I'm going to trust you to block it if it is not. And the last thing, in facing frustration, Jesus expressed confidence in the end result. <laughs> in the middle of a situation where he had no help, where he had no control, where truth didn't matter, and in the middle of that situation where he was getting something he didn't deserve, Jesus expressed confidence that God would bring it to a good end. Chapter 23, look at verse 42. The thief, the one thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, I love this. You know, verse 43 may not be so much just a word of confidence to the thief as it is a word of confidence about Jesus himself. He said, oh, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. But before Jesus could give any confidence to the thief, he had to take confidence and testify to himself. I'm going to be in paradise. I don't care what they've done to me. I don't care how they've abused the truth. I don't care how they've beaten me. I'm going to be in paradise. I'll die, but I'll be with God. He expressed confidence that he was in God's hands and the end result of a frustrating situation will be that God would see him through. Amen? Boy, that is powerful to me. See, he had said as much as that in chapter 22. Do you remember verse 69, or verse 67, when, they, when the chief priests asked him, if you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Now he said, look at verse 69. As a part of that answer, he said, Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. All oh, that made them angry. They thought he's blaspheming then. Are you then the Son of God? Well, you said it right. Okay, now we know we've heard it from our own mouths. But to me, that's an expression of confidence. You guys can do anything you want to to me, but I'm going to come out on top. The end result is I am in God's hands. And God, I know, I know. When you're frustrated and there's no help, it's out of your control, truth doesn't matter, and you're getting something you don't deserve, I know the danger is to lose sight of the end goal. The end goal is not a particular circumstance. My end goal in life is God, however he wants me. You know what I believe when Jesus said, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God? I think Jesus saw all the future in one fell swoop. I think he sees it all as one. Here's the cross, and then the resurrection, and then here's the ascension, and here's the coronation at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> A little girl was talking with her mama about creation and said, isn't that wonderful? God created all this world, all the birds and everything. And mother said, yes, honey, God created it all. And the little girl said, just think, he did it all with his left hand. She said, what, what, why do you say he did it all with his left hand? Because the Bible says that 
Jesus was sitting on, on God's right hand. <laughs> so he must have done it with his left. <laughs> I think Jesus sees Calvary. He sees the, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the coronation, the coming again on clouds of glory, sitting on the judgment seat. It is as if he's saying, this is what's going to happen. This is the end result. This is what God is going to do. I have confidence in the sovereign God. He's bringing me to this point. And it is as if he's saying, you fellows Caiaphas think you are smart now judging me, but in the end I will be your judge and I will bring all of these words back to you for judgment. <laughs> Boy, that's powerful. So the one who is being tried is saying in a very nice theological way, I'm coming back and I will be your judge because the Father has committed all judgment to whom, class? To the Son. To the Son. One of my favorite experiences <laughs> that I shall never forget is 1968. On one of my first overseas missions trips, I was in Jamaica. And I was with Dr. J.J. Carter Henry, the Jamaican pastor who drove a little Volkswagen bug. He would drive up into people's uh, driveways. He would blow us on beep, beep. Minister here, come out, he would say to the deacon. And say, oh me, I can just see myself now driving up to a deacon's yard, blowing my horn, rolling down the window saying, deacon, get out here. The preacher's come to see you. Those deacons would come out in the front porch and say, get out of that car, you lazy fat preacher. Get up here if you want to see me. Of course, I found out later the reason he didn't take me into their houses was it would have embarrassed them to see the poverty in their homes, he told me. One day we went to his uh, churches up behind Blue Mountain. He would go up the mountain this way, back and forth, going up the hill. I would say, why are you going up the hill this way? He said, this is cockscrewing, corkscrewing corkscrewing, he'd say. He said, that's the only way this little bug will make it up the hill. And he'd go back and forth like that, and we'd make 10 or 12 feet progress each way. And we go to these little churches. We've been all day to about six of the churches. The day before, we'd been in, in uh, the, Spani the prison in, in, in uh, Spanish town. And uh, we'd had 17 people saved. When we came back from up in the mountains, the Blue Mountains that day, and it was dark, it was late at night. He said, you know, Brother Mark, I've still got those Bibles for those 17 prisoners who accepted Christ yesterday. We must stop at the prison and we must discharge those Bibles, he said. I said, okay. Been a long day, but that's okay. So he drove his little Volkswagen up to these huge iron gates of the Spanish town prison over 500 hardened criminals inside. There's a high tower up here and a guard with a big gun and you could see him silhouetted against the, the, the moonlight of the night sky. And when we pulled up to the gates, <laughs> Dr. Henry went, beep, 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 beep. And the guard shouted down, who goes there? And Dr. Henry leaned his little head out the window and said, It is I, J.J. Carter Henry. 
I said, oh my goodness, I'm glad I paid my insurance. They're going to blow us off the map. And I thought, I wonder what it would be like for me to drive to Central Prison in Raleigh. It's a quarter to 12 at midnight, and I drive with my car up to the main gate, and I blow my horn. Some guy, some guy said, what do you want? And I say, it is I, Charles Mark Quartz. He goes, Pah! he obliterates me. <laughs> when he said, it is I, J.J. Carter Henry, those huge iron gates just swung open. And we drove inside. Because the keeper of the gate knew the voice of the one who approached and trusted him to bring in only suitable company. Perhaps Jesus is standing in that trial hall and the chief priests are saying, <laughs> come on, say, tell us you're the Christ. No, not going to do it. But hereafter you will see me coming and in one fell swoop he saw it all. His coming for his bride. His coming for judgment. And he gathers us up. One day he is coming. Mark it. He died. Yes, he was buried. Yes, he was raised. But one day he is returning. And when he comes for us, he will gather us all up. Take us to the judgment seat of Christ where we'll pass muster. Take us on to the throne of God. And there'll be a keeper of the gate who will say, Hark, who isn't here with all this multitude? And he will say, It is I, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who shed my blood for the souls of these men. And this is my bride, the church. And the keeper of the gate will say, come on into the presence of God. We've been waiting for you. Amen and amen. Will you stand with me in prayer? Father, speak to each of us about our need of a Savior, what Christ has done for us. Give us a way to live that is different from the world, to live like Jesus. Shape us to be conformed like him. And oh God, draw us to yourself because of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.